This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Kristen Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern. Now, the purpose of this show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. We want to understand the work of tomorrow. The industry that has personally fascinated me the most throughout my career has been the healthcare field. For many years, it seems that doctors were godlike masterminds who would be free from the managerial pressures of the rest of the business world. Increasingly, though, doctors find themselves in what might be called assembly line medicine, standardized processes with lots of pressure on productivity and volume. And while this industrialization of medicine is in full swing, a second revolution is on the horizon. Attracted by large market size and unmet medical needs, more and more technology companies are jumping in and trying to leverage AI and big data to the field of medicine. A fascinating medical specialty where both of these trends are playing out right now is the field of imaging and radiology, which is the topic of our show today. To help us understand how radiologists work and what challenges and opportunities they face, I want to welcome my dear colleague, Dr. Alice Chong, who is the Chief of Breast Imaging at Pennsylvania Hospital. And in the second half of the show, I will talk with Prashant Weirer, who is the CEO of Cure AI, a firm, as the name suggests, uses AI to read medical images. Welcome, Alice. Hi, Christian. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, Alice, talk about uh, what does it take to become a radiologist at your level? How did you get into this job? So for uh, official training, you have to get in the U.S. You have to uh, first start by having an undergraduate degree, and then that's four years. Uh, Then on top of that, four years of medical school. And that's usually when a lot of people decide what subspecialty they want to go into. Um, And then once you've decided that you want to go into radiology, you do one year of intern year where you uh, sort of um, have a background in how general medicine is practiced. And then in addition to that, four more years of training. So that's five years out of medical school. And nowadays, a lot of our radiologists finish by adding an additional year of fellowship in something else. So for me, that would be breast imaging. So if I edit this up correctly, that's 14 years of training after high school? Yes, quite a bit. You you come out to be pretty old by the time you're done, <laughs> middle-aged. So, so what makes a radiologist a great radiologist? If you think about mm-hmm. the skills that you develop, mm-hmm. I mean, clearly there is, you, you don't want to miss anything, so to mm-hmm. say, but what makes a, a good radiologist to a great radiologist? That's an interesting question. Um, traditionally, good radiologists are are the ones who have a good eye, and you know some of it can be learned by all that years of training, um, how to distinguish the minute details and differences to tell between something that's abnormal or abnormal, um, and a lot of that is gained through not just training but you know years of experience after that. Um, but uh, things are changing a little bit, and, and I think in fields such as more clinical, such as breast imaging or interventional radiology, I do think what distinguishes between a good and a great re- radiologist is um, how you take care of your patients as well. How do you communicate with patients and explain to them what the results are, and how do you take care of them once an abnormality is um, identified? How does your workday look like? You come to the office, and then what? I come into the office around 7.30 to 8 o'clock, and depending on my assignment, um, I, I, I can do a wide range of things. I could be reading a screening mammogram. I could be doing imaging on some of the problem, like someone with a breast lump. I could be doing um, all sorts of procedures using, using different machines. And um, at this teaching hospital, we pretty much always constantly have a trainee who is right next to us learning um, everything that we do. Um, and so that, um, that lasts till, you know, pretty much until the evening when the work is done. And so when the work is done and you go home, be it 5 p.m., 6 p.m. or whenever, mm-hmm. how many patients would you have seen on a typical day? So um, in, in an uh, academic setting where we do a lot of teaching, our volume is a little bit lower, but I would say at least 100 patients would be the average of how many patients go through me just as one radiologist. Um, And in private practice where things 
run a little bit faster. It could be much more than that. So you have yeah. seen 100 patients. When you see yeah. you've seen 100 patients, mm -hmm. are you referring to having seen the images, or would you also at least for a moment have seen the patient themselves? That's a good question. So that's a good mix of um, patients I don't see and the patients that I see. So a lot of people who come in without any problems, they get the images, they get the pictures, and then um, they go, and I just read their study. But the patients who have problems, I see, and um, I tell them the results before they leave. So I do see those patients. I would say maybe 30 to 40 patients I get to meet and the ones that I do procedures as well. So if uh, I can phrase it that way, seeing you is typically not a good thing. Is that a fair statement? Is, if I see my radiologist, that is kind of the first hint that something is going badly? Um, fortunately, there is usually an issue that has to be resolved. So somebody's coming with a problem and we try to give them an answer as to, is this a normal problem? Is there something abnormal behind, say, your pain? Or is there something abnormal behind wh whatever symptoms it is? So most of the time, we reassure the patient that they're fine. But there are other times, unfortunately, where there is some abnormality and we have to address it. And then they come back for another screening to do like more imaging or some form of uh, lab analysis of whatever that problem is? So let's say someone comes in with a lump. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we usually, if they're old enough, we do a mammogram and then we also do an ultrasound exam. And if there's an abnormality there, we talk to them about getting um, a tissue sampling, which is what a biopsy is. So we schedule them to get a biopsy of that area to identify why there is an abnormality on the imaging. Is, is the image the only interface between the care team and the patient? Or are there other things that, that an experienced doctor would look for, either feeling a lump or some, some change in any, any other values that are only possible to read and detect if you're present with the patient in a room? Oh, that's a great question as well. So over time for each, let's just say for me, for each patient who comes in feeling something, I also actually clinically feel the area as well. And there are some characteristics of that which makes me be more worried or be less worried. So if I touch something and they're moving around a lot, that means they're not stuck to the tissue, and that's usually a better sign than if something is actually, say, stuck to the tissue. Now, let me ask you a personal question, given mm -hmm. that I've, I've known sure. you for a little while. So I see in my job, I see like a thousand executives come and go every year for training and innovation and operations, and mm -hmm. I like them all, but it for me, the flow is a little bit fast, so to say. I, mm -hmm. I would much rather have um, 10 times as much time with each of these folks and 90% mm -hmm. fewer people. Mm -hmm. Is that the same in radiology where the flow is just so fast that you never get to know your patients really? Is that, is that something that you've experienced in your career? Unfortunately, um, it's happening more and more. I think we're working in a faster paced world just in general. I think traditionally doctors, as a matter of fact, all doctors had more time with their patients and patients had more time with our doctors. Um, we try to supplement uh, using different technologies now and how we communicate with our patients so that they feel more connected to us. For example, um, we have software now in our health electronic record where patients can actually contact us through email, um, things like that that could help um, add to the perception of having more time with the doctor that they're seeing. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervich, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Alice Chon, who is the Chief of uh, Breast Imaging at Pennsylvania Hospital. And we talk about fast-paced medicine and how mm -hmm. this is changing in world of technologies. So uh, you just mentioned that patients can electronically reach out to you. Mm -hmm. How often does this happen? So you see these, you mm -hmm. mentioned the number 100 patients mm -hmm. uh, per day earlier on. Mm -hmm. I'm just going through the math here in my head that even if, if just every other patient would send you a note right. afterwards, right. that would be a lot of email traffic. That would be. And, and for us, we actually don't have the same sort of relationship as, say, my family practice colleague who has to go through a huge number mm -hmm. of messaging every day. For us, we don't have the same kind of relationship with our patients. So it's usually just patients who, um, first of all, are, are very comfortable with using technology, um, communicating, and that they already have some issue that they're very concerned about, that we try to have that additional uh, way of communicating. And I also always offer um, that way of communication with my 
my patients, although actually not a lot of people use mm-hmm. that, they just do it when they feel like they really need to. It's good to know yeah. that you have that extra option. Right. So um, I, I'm, I'm still, because given that I'm a numbers person, I'm still kind of, <laughs> you, you mentioned the hundred that you do see. Sure. And then you also mentioned that in private practice, yeah. where there's not a teaching element, the right. flow is even much right. faster than that. Right. So... Uh, how does this work? So mm-hmm. uh, um, help us just walk through the kind of the mental mess. If I'm in over eight hours seeing 200 patients, mm-hmm. that's like 25 patients per, per hour. Mm-hmm. That is like roughly a patient every other minute. Mm-hmm. So so how help me like ha- what happens in these two minutes that in private practice a radiologist has to mm-hmm. see a patient? So uh, is it like a video game? The image pops up and then I, I get out my, my joystick and kind of maneuver around, <laughs> press a button. How, how, what do you do in those two minutes? So in those two minutes, I would say probably one minute is used to actually look at the images. And um, and that helps with years of experience. So say a first-year resident may take five minutes to look at a mammogram, whereas someone out of subspecialty training um, could really train themselves to work up to really just being able to glance at something and know right away, make a decision right away if it's abnormal or not. So one minute is spent on that. Um, I would say the other minute is divided between looking up a patient's relevant history and then generating the report. Um, and you can do this in one minute. I, I'm sure our students are scratching their heads and go like, how can she write a report in one minute? So right. I, I guess most of the reports, right. the good news is there's just it's the results are negative in the sense that there's nothing to be reported and you just press a button and it's pre assembled text modules. Right. So that's the, also the beauty of it. So we actually have very organized templates mm-hmm. So and templates for different scenario in a very organized ideal environment. So if a patient just comes in and it's negative, then we have a negative template. Um, and then in some places, you just press one button, that negative template report pops up and then off the report goes. So it's a little bit like McDonald's, so to say, right? I mean, you say, like, I yeah. want to have a chicken nuggets, and you, you just pick from a menu, so right, to say, and right. that, that creates the reports. Right, and you get the packaging. And then embedded in that report, there's also mechanisms to track a patient. So if they need to come follow up, if we say template follow up, then um, it automatically triggers a tracking mechanism so that um, it, the patient would be flagged as someone who needs to come back in six months. How, how big is your menu list? So if, if you think about, again, that, that metaphor of like mm-hmm. you have a, a, you know text modules that you can mm-hmm. pick on, how many pre-assembled text modules can you choose from? So it depends on the radiologist, right? So some radiologists tend not to use as much template and they like to tell a different story for each patient. I would say that would probably slow the radiologist a little bit down. Um, when I was in practice, as you know, I've also been in private practice, I would say I had maybe like 20 or 30 different scenarios for each patient. So it would just be a combination of what the patient needed or findings were. And then it really didn't take me too much time to generate report usually. So one technology that in many ways this is an example of is like mm-hmm. you increase your productivity, you increase the flow by using pre-assembled text modules. Right. What other techniques are you using or do you think you're going to be using in the next five years to further increase productivity to the extent that it is humanly possible to work even faster than that 100 or 200 number? So so what really helps actually, I think, in an academic environment is to have trainees to help us. So we're not really working by ourselves on one patient. So that's something that could help us um, to also uh, communicate with patients using faster technology so that end clinicians, so we don't actually have to dial, you know, pick up a phone and dial numbers. We can send off the messages and communicate that way um, would be another um another way to do it. So some of the technologies that are really hot items um, right now in terms of research and development is artificial intelligence. So basically using algorithms to um, allow machines to pick up abnormalities or or tell the doctor which exact image to look at, um, paying more attention to it and prioritizing our time um, are, I think, some ways that would allow us to um, do more in a short amount of time. So there would be some form of triaging where we keep the radiologist 
uh, really at the center of the process, mm-hmm. but there is some AI-based pre-processing of the images mm-hmm. of the style. Doctor, please look at kind of the upper left corner on this image here, and what do you think? Absolutely. So that's definitely one of them. Um, the other one is um, having machines know the patient's history. So we're prioritizing which ones have a significant history or which ones have more worrisome history. That way we can spend saying the mor- morning when our attention span is a little bit better on those studies and then read the ones that are, say, more normal or more uneventful in the afternoon, stuff like that. Do you do you see that uh, so imaging as a way of early detection or pre-screening for cancer, mm-hmm. is that in, in some form of indirect uh, competition with, with, with genetics? I would say it's not competing. I think they're more like synergistic. Um, I think... Um, I think any everyone benefits from um, early detection of breast cancer. However, uh, people who have certain genetic predisposition, um, they also follow protocols now, say, at the Perlman Center, where they're screened even earlier. So if they have a genetic predisposition or significant family um, history, they actually get scanned even earlier than what we recommend now. Before yeah. we before we fly to the moon, so today was genetics and AI. Maybe let's go mm-hmm. back to the, the current world. Sure. So, again, uh, you you're going through this yourself as a patient, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. And so, what would make a great experience for you? What what would it take for you? We talked about what makes mm-hmm. for a great radiologist, and you emphasize the kind of the human part of the interaction with the patient. Mm-hmm. But for you as an expert now, if you the, the days and the kind of the, the times in, in the year or the years you, you've kind of been on that other side, what is it that you observed as a patient? So I've often placed myself in the shoes of patients um, to make sure that they're getting care that they, they would like to get. Um, and I think also in this busy world and busy environment, I think one of the things is flexibility and um, no wait time. <laughs> so ideally, I would be setting up my appointment electronically from home at any time I would like to without having calling a phone number and going through a phone tree. Um, and when I arrive on time for the appointment, that I would have no wait time. Um, and there would be no check-in process that would take more time for my appointment. So basically, in and out is what I would <laughs> like. And also, in addition to that, um, you know, a lot of people are not familiar with the medical environment. So having someone communicate to me exactly what is going on and what's happening um, would be very helpful to my experience because most patients, they, they don't know how good you are, we are technically. They just know the quality of their visit by their experience. So, And then there are other things like, you know, comfortable waiting room, you know, where there's not a lot of distraction and stuff like that could also help too. So with most medical procedures or seeing doctors, it's a waiting room prior to the event that I think is the most worrisome or mm-hmm. most, most annoying maybe. Mm-hmm. It seems that in imaging, and especially in the context of cancer screening, mm-hmm. it's almost the waiting after the procedure that is most worrisome, right? Because that is the moment right. that I've been reminded of my right. ex- potential exposure to, to, to a cancer. And now you know that the image is in the box and right. you want to hear the results. Right. So how, how, how does that part of the waiting experience typically play out? So the patient is sitting then back, they, they get changed again, and mm-hmm. they sit back in the waiting room where they started? or So a lot of patients tell me it's not actually getting the bad news that bothers them. It's actually waiting and not knowing what the news would be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're right. And, and most patients are waiting in that result area um, in their gown. It could be a cold winter and they're in a very thin hospital gown. So that doesn't help very much. Um, And there could be, you know, in the waiting room, a variety of people, some with problems and some without. So, you know, you could have someone next to you and you're not anxious, but they're very Mm. anxious. They're in tears. And of course, that's going to affect the general atmosphere. So um, that that is something that um, would would probably could be improved on by, say, in some hospitals where they have two separate areas, mm-hmm. one for people without symptoms and the other ones 
with symptoms. So from the 100 patients that you see on a day, mm-hmm. how many of those, if you think of this kind of three buckets, there's mm-hmm. the one you're, you're fine, everything looks good. Mm-hmm. It's the one we, we, we have a serious problem here. This looks very likely to be a lump that is associated with cancer. And then mm-hmm. this in-between world where mm-hmm. either the, the breast tissue was too dense that the imaging didn't work out correctly mm-hmm. or there's something suspicious, but you, you don't know yet. If you think of these three buckets, definitely yes, definitely no, and maybe. Mm-hmm. These 100 are distributed distributed how over the three buckets? So most people are fine. So let's say someone comes in with a screening mammogram without any problem. So 90% are just fine. They don't have to come back. So in the 10% that we do see something that we want to look more into, meaning that um, we want to get some more imaging or let's say another x-ray or mammogram or do an ultrasound. So 10% of those patients actually do come back for that. And then among that, I would say um, a certain percentage, maybe 2 or 3%, that we would recommend an actual biopsy based on more abnormality. That so, we so order of net magnitude, over two days you see 200 patients. Mm-hmm. And that may, from those, basically about 20, you will have to come out and say, like, look, uh, mm-hmm. there is an issue here. It's, it's no serious alarm yet, but we need you to come back. And from those 20, there will be about one you will have to break the bad news. Right. So um, it depends on which hospital we are in the system, but um, most most of the times when someone has an abnormality on screening mammogram, we don't call them. We have someone call them. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on the hospital. Some hospitals at Pennsylvania Hospital, we actually do tell them, look, we, you know, we would like to get some additional imaging today. Um, and so then they get worked up, and then we will say, you need a biopsy. And mm-hmm. um, for us, we try not to frame it as bad news because we really still don't know yet. Um, the bad news really does happen when after the tissue gets taken and it's abnormal. So we try to tell the patient, look, yeah, this is not ideal. You need a procedure, but um, let's wait and see um, in most cases. Is yeah. that something with the years of experience? Is that the, do, do, the, do you still have the emotional empathy at that moment for the patient or given that you're doing this? <laughs> I mean, you are, you're in this rough position where yeah. every other day you're telling somebody that yeah. this could be really bad. Right. Is, is how, what, what happens inside your head or how do you feel it at that moment? And it is a very difficult and awkward moment. And That's a really good question too. And you know, some people may think, hey, I do this every day all day. You know, I'm just gonna be a robot and I have a, a, a spiel that I'm just gonna read off of. But I don't think that's true. I think as you go through your own life experiences um, and you see uh, you know, more patients and they're going through things, you actually become more empathetic or at, at least be able to express your empathy by experience. And um, that's actually also a really important point when I'm teaching our trainees is that they learn how to deliver um, information and news in, in the most understanding way as possible. Where is this headed? Or if you think about like five or 10 years ago, you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier on that the AI will not drive the radiologists out of business in the sense that there will most likely be some collaboration between the machine and the human mm-hmm. being. And if if, mm-hmm. if, if we think about the last part of our discussion, the, the importance of the empathy, the decision making, especially on these borderline cases, mm-hmm. it looks like there will be breast imaging for many, many years to come. But how, how will the job look like in, if, if in 10, 20 years from now? That's that's um, an interesting question. Um, I think I think there will be. Um, I think we would actually be even reading even more studies um, per doctor based on the amount of technological advances that have happened with the digital age and you know being able to get a lot of information and for a single patient and going through that. Um, and But technology is also going to help us um, sift through all these images and um, be more efficient that way. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but, you know, knowing how radiology has developed with different kinds of machines, I, I would think that we would be using even more different types of machine to diagnose breast cancer and being able to tell what is normal and what is abnormal by the machine relatively quickly, so we won't have to get extra imaging, um, or even maybe we don't even have to get biopsies to be able to tell that. So 
you know, taking away those steps may actually end up being easier for the patient. Do you do you see a certain technology arms race in the sense that these new devices like mm-hmm. 3D scanners or mm-hmm. so that the 3D ultrasound machine comes with so much more fixed costs that the, the pressure on the physician is even bigger to get patients moving through the practice? There is truth in that. So, for example, 3D mammogram is here to stay. Um, a lot of the research work um, actually is done at Penn where we're able to find that patients get recalled less or they're put into mm-hmm. short interval follow-up less, and there's an ability to diagnose some cancers better. Um, so 3D mammogram is here to stay. Um, 3D ultrasound, um, ultrasound itself has been shown to um, add value on top of a regular mammogram. I think patients um, like the idea of not having radiation. And also there's a lot about breast density, which is a, a big topic, you know, uh, in the community because women with dense breast tissue, we're not able to see as well on mammogram. So um and because it doesn't have any additional uh, 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 additional um, um, x-rays, you can just do an ultrasound radiation, I mean, um, patients are willing to pay out of pocket for that. So let's say if you were in private practice and you, you want to build a practice mm-hmm. based on that, um, you could potentially um, have more, make more money from offering those kinds of exams. Would you do it all over again? 14 years of training? Uh seeing 100 patients per day? Uh, so I I would. I would. I don't know how my own personal career will evolve, but I can say that I walk into work every day, and I am happy because I am taking care of people and I'm really um, helping to save lives. So and, and being able to offer, you know, care for patients makes me have a very satisfactory career. So I guess I would. <laughs> Says Dr. Alice Chung, the Chief of Breast Imaging here at the Pennsylvania Hospital. We need to take a short break right now. When we come back, I will welcome our second guest for today, uh, Prashant Warrior, who is the CEO of QRAI, a firm that uses AI to read medical uh, images. Thank you and stay tuned. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Terbish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Tevish, and this is Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. We've been talking about the future of radiology and imaging, and uh, in our first half of the show, we talked with Dr. Alice Chong, who is the Chief of Breast Imaging at Pennsylvania Hospital. For me, it was fascinating to hear about the process flows and almost the assembly line medicine that is part of radiology, where basically the doctor sees uh, here at Pennsylvania Hospital about 100 patients per day. And in private practice, that, that cadence, that speed, that velocity of flow might be even as high as 150 or 200 patients per day. Now, beyond that improvement in the process flow, there's another fascinating wave of uh, technology change going on right now, and that is the introduction of uh, artificial intelligence and and big data into imaging and radiology. And uh, it's my great pleasure now for the second half of the show to welcome Prashant Warrior, who is the CEO of Cure AI, uh, which is really specializing in applying artificial intelligence to reading medical images. Welcome, Prashant. Hi, how are you doing? Hey, Prashant, uh, talk about what Cure AI is about and how it operates. So Cure AI is, we, we are a company, we are training alg- algorithms to interpret radiology images. So we are working on two modalities, so rather than work on a lot of different types of X-rays and CD scans and MRIs, uh, we work on two of them. One is on chest X-rays and second is on head CD scans. Uh, we work on head CD, so we are training algorithms which can automatically read chest X-rays. And today we can read chest X-rays to an accuracy level of around 90%. And uh, same with head CD scans. So we can read head CD scans to an accuracy of around 90%. And this is compared to uh, how a radiologist would read them. And um, I, I can talk a bit more about why we chose these two. Uh, chest X-ray we chose because that is one of the most popular imaging modalities around the world. I mean, for any kind of ailment, you go to the doctor, the doctor would describe a chest X-ray. And uh, a lot of this, I mean, so for example, we are we are we started out of India, and in India, a lot of X-rays, chest X-rays specifically, go unreported. Uh, there is no radiologist report along with the chest X-ray. So you would get a film and you take it to the physician. Uh, that's one. There's a huge challenge of tuberculosis where chest X-ray is one of the primary modes of diagnosis. And uh, because of that, because of not being able to read chest X-rays, a lot of patients uh, go out of the loop and they don't get treated and and they are actually transmitting the disease to others. 
So again, so the, the multiple reasons why we chose chest X-rays, there is a huge number of chest X-rays done globally. And second uh, one we chose was head CT scan. That we chose because to take a head CT scan when you're looking for uh, a, a patient with a, a trauma, which is in a, they've been in an accident or uh, they've fallen or something, or stroke. Uh, and in both of these cases, you want a quick diagnosis. And typically, a radiologist may not be available, doctor may not be available. The algorithm can interpret these scans in a matter of seconds. So both for chest X-rays and head CTs, and we spoke about, uh, I mean, uh, a radiologist taking up, taking 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes to do a scan, the algorithm can do it in a, uh, sometimes in milliseconds or even in seconds. So that's, that's the, uh, the speed at which algorithms can process these images. Fascinating. Uh... Prashant, uh, tell us where, where do you stand right now in the evolution of the technology? Uh, do you see patients right now in clinical settings or are you still at a stage where you're training algorithms and you're developing uh, the capabilities? So we are both, in fact, I mean, so we are uh, at a point where we are uh, in uh, being used in clinical setting in certain hospitals in India. Uh, and we are going through the regulatory protocol. I mean, so we're going through the regulatory, regulatory process in the U.S. I mean, the FDA process and in the in Europe, uh, the CE process. And so both of these are, are, we are working on them. And once we are done with those, we can actually start seeing patients in uh, clinical practice in these, these geographies as well. But uh, we are already utilizing these solutions for uh, screening for TB patients. So especially tuberculosis is a huge challenge uh, in, the, uh, in the developing countries. And there are more than 10 million uh, people diagnosed with tuberculosis every year, new, new, new cases diagnosed every year. And a lot of them go, the diagnosis is missed because uh, they don't go through the diagnostic protocol. There is nobody to read chest x-rays, for example. And we are using this, our technology, to read chest x-rays in Cameroon, in Nepal, in India, in multiple multiple geographies. It's already being used uh, for uh, the uh, screening for tuberculosis, which is not a diagnosis, but primarily for screening because then they would go to a microbiological test, which would then confirm whether the patient has TB or not. So uh, what I find interesting about it is that in most U.S. setting, I think uh, AI is typically applied either for a cost story or a quality story. In your case, you're really, it's an access story, right? You're providing care to people who otherwise would have not been able to access any radiologist at all. Exactly. That, that's absolutely true. We believe that, I mean, uh, we, our, our motto is that we want to improve radiology, I mean, by improving, making it more affordable and accessible. So accessibility is for a certain geographies where there is no radiologist. I mean, if you look at, in fact, I mean, even rural U.S., right? Look at rural India or rural Africa, even rural U.S. I mean, there are very few radiologists for the, the population there, for the amount of scans that are produced in those areas. And if you can automate the reads, I mean, you can basically improve the productivity of the radiologist, number one. And if, of course, in India, there are no radiologists. So you can actually improve, make even a basic level of radiology available to the uh, patient in those geographies. So, Prashant, you're talking about the digital part of the work where you're basically capturing the image from a technician. It goes into a machine. And then in the current world, that image is then on the other side of the machine displayed, sent to a radiologist. In your case, it is displayed to your algorithms. Um, what does it take on the patient-facing end? So can anybody just take a, an X-ray or how much of a front end in terms of the, the technicians or the, the people feeding the machine do you need? I mean, the algorithm works just like, and as you mentioned, works just like a doctor does. I mean, so today if you look at uh, the radiology practice, a lot of radiologists actually uh, work remotely, right? So the scans are uh, and transmitted to them uh, to radiology treated uh, reality softwares and they read the um, read the scans remotely and uh, the algorithm pretty much does the same thing and uh, it, it can take I mean so for chest x-rays or HCD scans which are the algorithms which are the modalities we have trained our algorithms on it can take almost uh, any kind of image I mean from any 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 device I mean so we have trained it on uh, millions of scans so it has seen images from hundreds of different types of devices from uh, hundreds of different types of medical centers uh, taken by many different radiologists or technicians, and so it, it has seen a huge variety of data, and so it can it can ingest data from many different sources, and it can produce accurate results from uh, disparate data sources as well. So you mentioned these algorithms and the, the technology be, behind AI. For most of us, this is just a black box. Um, without getting too much into technical details, can you talk a little bit more about AI and deep learning for those of us who are not familiar with those terms? 
Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, all the recent hype about AI is because of this technique called deep learning, which is basically deep artificial neural networks, right, which function uh, in a way, I mean, similar to the how, how the human brain functions because it has got layers of features, right? And I, I'll, I'll talk about how it is different from the traditional way of looking at objects, right? For example, when you look at object recognition, when you, when you want to train an algorithm to, uh, let's say, for example, understand what a dog is, right? Uh, you might, I mean, traditionally, maybe five, six years back, you might actually teach the algorithm rules. You might say that a dog has two eyes, it's got two ears, it's got a certain color, it's got a certain shade. I mean, you might give it a lot of rules based upon which the algorithm will now learn to identify what a dog is. And you might have to create, again, feed it thousands of rules based upon which it can now identify what a cat is. So you're basically, a, a lot of AI, a lot of uh, programming was rule-based till a few years back. What happened with deep learning is that the deep learning algorithms learn the same way that a human being does, right? You don't actually tell a child that a dog has got two ears and two eyes and so on. I mean, this is what a dog is. So you tell a child that this is a dog, and you probably show five dogs, and a three-year-old child would automatically figure out what a dog is. And the algorithm is very similar. Of course, it's not as smart as a child, so it takes uh, probably thousands of images to figure out what a dog is. But the idea is the same, that I, I, I give the algorithm... Uh, thousands of images of dogs, and let's say thousands of images of other objects. And uh, I let the algorithm figure out what a dog is on its own, and it does that. And uh, what we said is, if, I mean, an algorithm can figure out what a dog is, which is technology that has been developed by the likes of Google or Facebook or the University of Toronto, can we now train an algorithm to read a chest X-ray scan or a head CT scan uh, with the same amount of data? So if you're able to give millions of scans, can we train an algorithm to read uh, read a CT scan or an MRI or, or an X-ray. So the distinction is really that, I mean, I studied computer science literally 30 years ago, and even back then there was kind of in the AI community there were these things called neural networks where basically you don't impose any prior knowledge, you just feed it something on the one end, you tell it, tell it something on the other end, versus the more rule-based systems where you're in somehow imposing your limited knowledge on the system and then rely that the, the algorithms just replicate the rules. So the deep learning is really much more organic in the sense that you're, you're imposing less of a structure. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And so how much... And what has changed is, I mean, I think 30 years back also these algorithms were there, but what has changed now is that the amount of data has gone up exponentially, the computing speed has also gone up exponentially, and the same techniques which did not work 15 years back now work very, very well. So... It's just a matter of more data and more computing. So you're basically fitting some form of, it's not a regression model, but some form of a statistical inference model between the input clue and then the right output. And so it is basically the millions and millions of images that are now digitally available plus the processing speed to handle the complexity of that that makes this possible? Exactly, exactly. So it, it's basically, I mean, you're feeding in images and you have uh, some outputs. So for example, let's say the input is, images of chest x-rays, some of which are normal, some of which are abnormal, right? And uh, the output is basically predicting whether it is normal or abnormal. So the output is whether it's a, it's a probability of whether that particular x-ray, one x-ray is normal or abnormal. And you start with the first x-ray, you pass it through the algorithm. The algorithm learns from that. So it, the algorithm has got some initial weights. It, it learns some weights. And then you pass the second x-ray. So it keeps on tuning those weights. And as you keep on feeding it more and more data, it keeps on tuning the weights. It's got layers of uh, neurons called artificial neurons, and so millions of them. And it keeps on uh, tuning these millions of weights so that after you feed in a lot of data, it automatically learns how to read uh, an X-ray and say whether that X-ray is abnormal or abnormal. And these training data sets for the images with the corresponding manually done diagnosis that you need to train the algorithms, are those available on some form of open source platform, or how did you get those? So we have uh, collaborated. I mean, one of the first things we said is if you wanted to do deep learning, we have to uh, have access to a large amount of data because working on small data sets doesn't make sense at all. And uh, so we we, um, collab we collaborate with probably 10-plus institutions around the world, 10-plus um, medical institutions, so hospitals, universities, and so on, uh, from which we have collected this data. And uh, what we also do is we have basically... We train the algorithm the same way radiologists would be trained, right? So we give it the image as well as the report. Now, what we also have built is, I mean, when you when I said earlier that you have to have an X-ray and you have to label it as normal or abnormal, 
that labeling for a million images is extremely cumbersome. I mean, if I have to go and label million images as normal abnormal, that will take probably years to do for a radiologist, right? So what we said is, can we now take the reports? So each of these cases has been reported by a radiologist. Can we take the reports and from, can we from uh, the reports using natural language processing algorithms, which are again a machine learning based algorithms, can we extract that knowledge out of that report? From that report, can we say whether that X-ray was normal or abnormal? And that became the what is called the ground truth. So for an X-ray, the report becomes the ground truth, which is whether that X-ray was normal or abnormal. And that was then used to train the algorithm. And what does uh, QAI do compared to, I mean, there, there are many multi-billion dollar medical companies trying to crack this nut. Where is your unique edge or what is kind of your approach that gives you competitive advantage in the marketplace? I think one of the things uh, we have had access to is a large amount of data. So we have, today I mean in our database, we have got more than 100 million images, which makes our algorithms very, and because, I mean, deep learning accuracy scales with the amount of data that you have. So our algorithms are very accurate. Our, our solutions are very accurate because of the amount of data that we have. So that gives an edge uh, to us. Uh, second is that we are very focused. So we said that we want to work on these Two, two problems, I mean, chest X-rays and head CD scans. And especially chest X-rays is a problem that uh, few, fewer companies are working on because that's, a, that's not a, a first-world problem. It's a problem of in the developing countries. So we said we want to fully report these. So rather than saying that I want to identify nodules, I mean, so a lot of companies are working on, for example, identifying one abnormality on a chest X-ray, let's say nodules on a chest X-ray or nodules on a CT scan. We said, can we train an algorithm to do everything that a radiologist does. So we said, can we now train an algorithm to detect the top 15 abnormalities in chest X-rays or the top 15 abnormalities in head CD scans? And now we can do that. So if you look at uh, X-rays, I mean, it's around 75 to 80% of chest X-rays would be normal. And out of the 20, 25% which are abnormal, we can detect the top 15 abnormalities. So we can actually report on probably 98, 99% of the chest X-rays. Uh, same holds true for head CDs. So the fact that we are doing a comprehensive reporting job it makes us differentiated. The fact that we have a lot more data makes us differentiated. The fact that we're focused on just two modalities rather than working on a lot of problems also makes us differentiated. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tebish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with uh, Prashant Warrior. Prashant is the CEO of Cure AI, and uh, his, the company is specializing in uh, chest X-rays, uh, partly to, to detect uh, tuberculosis. And the way they do it is, rather than applying a radiologist to reading those images, they rely on AI. Um, we had a fascinating story about the, the algorithms and the deep learning behind that. Um, but, um, Prashant, back to the use case now. Um, let me compare it to, to a self-driving car, right, where there's different level of autonomy in these self-driving cars from the moment where I have a driver's assist to the moment where the car is really fully autonomous. Is there a similar thing in radiology, so to say, the, the case where I fully rely on the uh, algorithm and the algorithm does everything versus the algorithm is just flagging something on an image and then the, the the radiologist is taking a closer look? I think absolutely. I mean, I think the way our doctors are using our algorithms right now is to, for example, differentiate between normal versus abnormal, right? So uh, a radiologist walks into his clinic and he's seeing, let's say, 100 images, 100 scans are available for him. Out of those, he knows that around 20 are uh, abnormal, 80 are normal. Uh, if if somebody, somebody can actually prioritize those abnormal cases for him or her, that can make a huge differentiator for that radiologist. And we are able to do that. So we are able to filter out the normal versus abnormals, number one. Second, we can also pre-report for that radiologist. So we can now, not only is the radiologist just reading that X-ray or a CT scan, he's already got a report which the algorithm has created. It's almost like an intern or a resident has created a report for him. So he's uh, able to use that. And third thing which we are doing is also doing a post-reporting. So now when a radiologist reports uh, on a scan, uh, the algorithm can immediately look at the report that the radiologist has created, look at the scan, and say that, okay, maybe you missed this small pleural effusion on the left side of the lung. We can find, we can find something that the radiologist might have missed, improving the accuracy of the radiologist. So all of these are assisting the radiologist. They are not replacing the radiologist at this point. Uh, so... It's assistive. I mean, same same way self-driving cars. I mean, it's assistive, and I think it will be a while before we are fully able to replace radiologists because not only because the algorithms may not advance at that pace, but also because the regulatory uh, structure today of today may not necessarily allow us to 
create algorithms which can fully replace radiology. So the that end, said, I think there is an, I think there is an opportunity to replace radiologists in areas where it's a screening protocol, right? So, for example, lung nodules, uh, you screen using uh, uh, HFCDs, or for example, tuberculosis is screened using chest X-rays. Now, those, for those screening areas where it is not the final diagnosis, you could actually replace uh, a potential, potentially replace a radiologist or potentially replace uh, a physician in that, in those kinds of, um, in those areas. So the interface between the machine and the human being is, is, is kind of an interesting one. I'm just wondering to the extent that if you pre-diagnose through the machine and then have the report almost like a checkbox for the doctor, is this as you like it? Does it introduce some form of a bias in the diagnosis where uh, I, I think there's a certain status quo bias, if the machine already has told me that, that the, uh, is there a risk that the radiologist would just become compliant? I think there is, I mean, of course, I mean, that's a very valid point, and there is that risk. So, in fact, I mean, we have had uh, a radiologist request for not only a pre-read, so there is basically one is to read the scan before the radiologist reads it and provide a pre-report for them so that they can work on that. Uh, some radiologists prefer the post-report. So once you have read, read completely, the radiologist is independently in an unbiased manner reading the scan and reporting on the scan. And post that, the algorithm takes a second look at it and says that, okay, maybe you missed something, where there is no bias. So it can, I mean, you can look at the same technology used in both ways. In one, one way, there is a bias. In the second way, there is no bias. Of course, uh, the first way reduces time, so it improves productivity. The second way actually does not improve productivity, but it improves the accuracy only. But that's, uh, there is certainly, I think, uh, that, um, that, I mean, bias that can be induced. I will add one more thing here, which is, that, I mean, in 1980s, digital pathology, I mean, what you call the complete blood count, that was mostly manually done. So a pathologist used to actually peer into a microscope and count the red blood cells or the white blood cells, the platelets, and score them. And it used to take them 20 to 30 minutes per patient to do that. Today, that process is fully automated, where I don't have to do, I mean, anything for the complete blood count. It's a, it's a machine-generated process. And it's the most basic blood test, the most basic blood test, right? Uh, whereas a pathologist today can focus on uh, things such as immunohistochemistry, uh, grading tumors, and so on. So I believe that, especially, I mean, some of the, the uh, entry-level modalities such as chest X-rays could be automated to a level where it can be fully automatic, uh, and it can be kind of a screening modality where you're screening for some uh, diseases, and then based upon that, based upon the results of the chest X-ray, which is an automated system, uh, a chest CT scan could be taken or another uh, another exam could be taken, which would then provide, uh, which would be read by radiologists, right? So I think there is an opportunity to automate some areas which could be more of a uh, entry level um, um, modality, entry level uh, diagnostic systems. So the technology that pushes really the frontier and creates a better system that you develop, and sometimes you say it's it's up to us as a world or to a set of clinician or healthcare systems to decide whether they use that technology to drive efficiency by basically having some degree of automation and support, by being a quality supporter, by, by having what you described, uh, just having a, the machine be a second pair of independent eyes looking at, at the report, or be a kind of an access facilitator in the rural settings of TB screening in India. So it's, it's really, you, you are reasonably agnostic on how that technology will be deployed. At this point, yes. I mean, I, I think at this point, I mean, we and there are, I mean, other companies like us, I think it's too early to figure out how exactly the space will evolve, right? I think, I think uh, similar to autonomous vehicles, I mean, the space has shown promise. Uh, algorithms are able to do a lot of tasks which would previously require huge amount of expertise, huge amount of radiologist expertise, right? And uh, they are able to do that. And I think the question is how it, how it is deployed, how it fits into the workflow, and how it is regulated in a manner where the patients get better care. That is finally the uh, problem that all of us are solving. And I think I think we are I mean certainly from Cure.ai perspective we are agnostic to how it is used because we want to finally improve patient care uh, while of course I mean not I mean reducing the numbers of false positives or true negatives. Right. So, so, um, so if we stay in the uh, image but, of uh, if we stay with imaging for a moment if we stay with imaging for a moment 
if you look at the history of imaging, uh, uh, 500 years ago, people were making paintings of famous people. And then at some point, we had photography. And more recently, we, we have digital photography. And along that cycle, the the number of pictures taken has just gone through the roof, right? In the sense that now, if you think about moving from the Kodak film to the digital camera, all of us are taking dramatically more pictures now. Do you, do you envision a similar thing happens, happening with medical uh, imaging that as the technology for, for reading these images becomes cheaper and cheaper, the number of images that are produced worldwide are going to explode? Actually, uh, that's already happening even before AI because one of the uh, reports that I read said that in 1999, radiologists was re- reading two images per minute, two, two point something images per minute. Now that number is around 18 in 2010. This is in 2010. That number was 18 images per minute. And when I say images, I'm talking about the number of slices, right? So typically, I mean, in 1990s, you would probably have a a, a 10 slice CT scan. Today, you have a 100 slice CT scan, or you have a a 500 slice MRI. So the number of slices that you have uh, in a, in a, in the uh, image itself is going up. The number of scans is going up. So already radiologists are seeing that. They are seeing a lot more. Uh, scans being taken. And of course, I mean, I'm sure, I'm absolutely certain that uh, when AI comes in and the productivity of the radiologist improves, uh, the number of scans taken will uh, significantly go up, especially if these these technologies are used in screening settings. Say, for example, mammography, which is a screening protocol, or maybe a chest x-ray becomes a screening protocol, then uh, almost everybody would go through that on a yearly basis, right? So that you can actually screen for certain diseases or screen for uh, additional screen screen to see if additional uh, diagnosis is required. Additional exams are required. Is the imaging capture technology keeping track with that? I mean, so we are focused in this show primarily focused on the interpretation of the image, but that image has to get from the the patient into the machine first. Is is the capturing productivity the the cost of making these pictures has that come down at in uh, a similar speed? I think the cost. I mean, I, I would not be able to speak to that. I mean, I think uh, in general the cost definitely has not gone up. I mean, I've not, uh, as a patient, I can I can say that the the cost of uh, doing a CD scan has not gone up in the last at least last five to ten years that I have been looking at this space. So uh, I think the devices are getting better. Uh, of course, I mean, what you had was 1.5 Tesla, became 3 Tesla, and so on for MRIs. But the cost of actually taking an MRI has uh, remained stable. Thank you, Prashant. That's Prashant Vaira, who is the CEO of QAI, a company that has specialized in AI for reading images from CT scans to, to head scans. Uh, we have reached the end of the show right now, and that means it's time for us to summarize and reflect a bit of what we have seen. Uh, fascinating trends in the AI world uh, applied to imaging. Uh, Dr. Chong was very optimistic that radiologists will be around for a long time and uh, given the discussion that we had on the importance of empathy and communicating results to the patients, that seems like a, a promise that, that is not going to go away. Uh, potentially more supported in the future by technology such as the work done by QAI. Uh, but that's up for, for us to see. Uh, let me conclude by thanking my uh, sound expert, Daniel Bruno, and my producer, Matt Dats, for their wonderful support. We can hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Tevish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.